We swim all week long through a sea of discouragement. Most days we can be filled with negative emotions and experiences, negative interactions and negative thoughts. We can feel negatively and think negatively about others. But it can be more devastating, more debilitating, more discouraging when that negative thought is turned in on ourselves. When we are judging ourselves. When we are critical of ourselves. When we hear the still small voice in our own heads condemning us, pointing out fault, dragging us again into the memory of our many failures. Things aren't right in the world, it's fallen. We aren't right, we're fallen. And as a result, we can feel trapped. We can feel locked into a a system of life wherein we seem never to escape the condemnation, never to escape the judgment, never to escape the critical voice. And so we can be discouraged. We can sit like a prisoner in an ancient cell bound in darkness with no thought of light. And yet that's not how God intends us to live. Our text this morning brings us good news. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. If you want to sort of think about these four verses in one main thought, we might put it something like this. Righteousness and freedom have been won for us by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in particularly, what I want us to see this morning is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have began this series called The Spirit-Filled Life, and the burden of this series is to think perhaps more deeply about the work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. I've been arguing that most of our conversation about the Spirit is in fact superficial. That the arguments that we have about spiritual gifts, for example, that's an important discussion. But Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, he relegates that to second or third order importance behind other work of the spirit like love. So what we have need of is a deeper sort of understanding of the Spirit's work in our lives. And what we have need of is to push back against the suspicions we have when we come to this topic. We've talked about two. Some suspect that we should be experiencing more of the Spirit than we are. And some are suspicious that we are putting too much emphasis on the Spirit. I don't know which background you come from. But I do know that both groups have need, as do I of thinking more deeply about the deep work of the Spirit in the Christian's life. Now this morning, part of the deep work of the Spirit is setting us free. Sets us free from four things in our text. Number one, the Holy Spirit sets us free from condemnation. That's verse one. Number two, the Holy Spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death. That's verse two. 
And number three, the Holy Spirit sets us free from works righteousness. Verse three. And number four, the Holy Spirit sets us free from the flesh, the sin nature. Verse four. Now, what I want you to understand about those four things is that along each level, the Spirit is working deeper and deeper in our hearts. Getting deeper and deeper to the root of the change and the freedom that we need. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The Spirit sets us free in four ways. Number one, He sets us free from condemnation. That's the bold and liberating declaration of verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Should have been more shouts right there. The punctuation in the Bible is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Translators supply the punctuation. If I were on a translation committee right here, I would not have a period but an exclamation mark after verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This truth needs to be shouted. This truth needs to be embraced with great joy. Paul spent all of chapter 7. Go ahead. You ain't got to wait on me. Paul spent all of chapter 7 describing the wrestling match that goes on in the Christian life. He says in Romans chapter 7, look there with me, verse 21 and 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Do you see? He's a trapped man. He wants to do right. His mind is set on God's law. His inner being delights in that law, but something inside him keeps pulling him away from God and pulling him back to sin. So bad he calls himself wretched. I'm afraid too many Christians are too oversaved that they can't admit this experience. They pretend they never have any struggles with sin. They they act as if their sin is outside them rather than in their members, as Paul puts it. 
And if they do admit any sin, they act as if getting out of the sin was as easy as flipping a switch. But Paul is describing an experience of guilt and condemnation and shame and struggle that makes a grown man cry, who will save me from this body of death? If Paul were alive today, he might say the struggle is real. So verse 1 is a word for strugglers. If you ain't got no struggles this morning, listen to starting at verse 2. But verse 1 is a word for strugglers. Verse 1 comes splashing into our struggle like a fat kid at the pool doing a cannonball. It just, boom, it just blows up our struggle. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love fat kids. That was, that was meant to be, that was a term of affection. Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does this word of God mean? The word condemnation means to pronounce a person guilty. Condemnation comes from the courtroom. It's to pass sentence on someone with the idea of punishing or penalizing them. We say things like a person has been condemned to death, for example. That means their judgment or their verdict was a death sentence, and beloved, death was our condemnation. That's what Paul is talking about here. When we were in our sin and rebelling against God, we had a death sentence hanging over our heads. But then comes a surprising verdict. Then comes a stunning ruling that all of us who know the condemnation and the struggle of Romans chapter 7 have God pronounce over us no condemnation. Not guilty. God has declared a complete and radical freedom from that death sentence that we deserve because of our sin. He has pronounced a freedom from all the feelings and the thoughts and, the, and of worthlessness and condemnation and guilt and shame. He has set us free. That freedom from death and condemnation applies when? Look at the text, verse 1. Therefore, now... <laughs> When is now? Now. Every moment of your life is lived in now. There is a past and a future, but you only experience now. So every moment you breathe, every, every eyelash you, you drop or eyelid you blink or every heartbeat in that now pronounced over you by God the judge is no condemnation. No condemnation. Every second, every breath, breathe in the verdict. Breathe in the freedom from guilt and shame. But this verdict only applies to those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I I get a lot of mail from law firms, ambulance chasers, They send these flyers asking if anyone I know and love or if I have been injured by a product or have used this other product that's now associated with some devastating disease. And I read it, Michael, and I said, well, my side do kind of (laughs) hurt. And they say, if that's you, call this number and join our class action lawsuit. 
you might be entitled to a, a big bundle of money. And I ain't so saved that I don't think about it. <laughs> but I ain't a part of that class. To be a part of that suit, to, to win that, that, that verdict, you have to be a part of that class action suit. I'm not a part of that class. Now, Romans 8.1 in this verdict says we got to join a particular class of people in order to receive this verdict. It's those who are in Christ Jesus. And when you're in Christ Jesus, you're spiritually one with Jesus. That's the idea here in Paul's writings. It's an idea that's first expressed by Jesus himself when he's praying in John chapter 17, verse 21. And he prays that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. It's a marvelous mystery, but to be in Christ is to be in God. And have God in you. Galatians 2.20, which Amos quoted earlier, helps explain. says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but who? Christ, who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. How did that happen? Galatians 2.20 says, by faith. By faith in the Son of God, crucified for sins, buried for three days, raised from the grave on the third day with life in his hands. By faith in that one, we are joined together with him and with God and with the Spirit and the, and the, and the, and the, and the life of the Trinity is in us. He's in us, we're in him, and in him there is no condemnation. That's how we get in Christ. And the question is, are you beloved in Christ? Outside of Christ there's only judgment. There's only guilt. There's only shame on the day of judgment because of our sin. But in Christ, we never need listen again to the voices of condemnation. Doesn't matter whether the voice comes from outside of us or whether the voice comes from inside of us. We are free from the wrath and judgment of God to come. We are free Amen. from fearing condemnation. This is the Spirit's work in our life. To see that, look at the next verse. You might be asking yourself the question, how is this possible? How can I have an experience of wrong and a sense of condemnation for wrong and yet pronounce that I have no condemnation before God? How do those things go together? We, we still are, as Christians, we still do sin. We still struggle. So how can we be aware of sin within ourselves, of doing things we know we should not do that displease God, and yet conclude, no condemnation. Well, this is possible because the Spirit's work is a little bit deeper than just that verdict. Verse 2, it's possible because the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. We can be strugglers and simultaneously free from condemnation because there's been a change 
in the law. There really are only two basic laws governing, governing God's universe. The first law is named here is the law of sin and death. It's an old law. It goes all the way back to our first parents. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, God had put Adam and Eve in the garden. He had instructed them that they could eat from every tree in the garden except one. And this is what we read in Genesis 3, verse 15. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. That's the law. Here's the consequence. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. That's the death. From the beginning with our first parents, Adam and Eve, God established the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. Death is the condemnation. Death is the penalty. Death is the judgment. It's the consequence of disobedience and rebellion against God. That's why anything dies. Nothing was made to die. Sin kills us. And that's according to God's law. But now there's a second law that's been passed. It's called the law of the, notice, spirit of life. First law brings death. Second law, through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, brings life, new life, eternal life. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of life, and, and that's because he's the one who raises us from spiritual death to new life in Christ. So, beloved, this means that the way of escape from that first law is not by running away. You won't outrun God. You won't find a land where that first law is not in effect. We will all one day have to give an account to God under that law if we die under that law. No, the way to escape that law and its consequence is actually to become a citizen under this second law, the law of the spirit of life. Let me give you an illustration. The United States Constitution is celebrating this country as a unique and beautiful document, a statement of freedom and law. Yet most people today don't seem to recognize that the U.S. Constitution protected slavery and thereby for millions of people was a law that brought death. There are three clauses in the Constitution that protect slavery and empowered slaveholding in the country. The, the three-fifths clause, you've heard of that. All those people of African descent enslaved people in the southern states were counted as three-fifths human for the purpose of taxation and representation in the federal government. It actually was a law that gave more power to slaveholding states. Then there is the importation clause. A clause in the Constitution that put a end by date on the transatlantic slave trade, but it didn't end the domestic trade. What it did was, in effect, strengthen those slave traders in the country. And so Africans began to be bred for slavery. Then there's the Fugitive Slave Clause. That's the clause in the Constitution that required free states to return escaped slaves to their owners on as little as a claim that they belong to them. This made life dangerous, not only for the runaway slave, but from the free slave as well. If you ever saw 12 Years a Slave, the story of Solomon Northrop, free man taken into slavery. Now, the Constitution actually never uses the word slave or slavery. It's a tricky little document. 
I love what John Quincy Adams says. He says, the omission of the word slave and slavery, quote, was the fig leaves under which the parts of the body politic are decently concealed. You'll recognize the biblical allusion to Adam and Eve being covered with fig leaves to hide their sin. That's what he's saying about the omission of those terms in the Constitution. Uh, Perhaps the framers were pricked in conscience enough to not want to call what they were doing, what it was. You, you, know how, you know how sinners sometimes don't like to call their sin, sin. Don't want to be called a sinner. The net result of the law of the Constitution was slavery and death for black people until the passage of a new law, the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution abolished slavery in the entire country with the exception of enslaving people as punishment for crime. That's a whole other story. But on this point, it was a new law that abolished the first. And this new law brought freedom to those who were under it. What's true in the case of the U.S. Constitution is more true in the case of God's government of the universe. The law of the spirit of life has been ratified in glory and all those who come under that law are free from the law of sin and death and the condemnation that it brings. Think about it. This means sin no longer kills the Christian. Not that second death. Oh, sin has an effect in our lives. Oh, it hurts and it ruins things. No, it has consequence, but, but it will not kill you. You will not taste the second death. You will not taste the final judgment where Christ uh, pronounces condemnation of all those who died in their rebellion. No, you have become part of a new country with a new law called the law of the spirit of life. And in that law, you have been made free and the old law can't touch you anymore. You have diplomatic immunity in the face of sin. I know those of us who are nervous and tempted toward legalism, you're like, Pastor, don't tell them that. They might sin. What you need to feel right now is freedom. Freedom from sin and freedom from the consequences of sin. The Bible's real clear. If we go back to Romans 6, you're not set free so that you would delight yourself in sin. God forbid. But you are set free. And in my experience, most Christians don't feel and know and embrace that freedom nearly enough. Hear and understand the deep work of the Spirit. You are not condemned because the Spirit at a deeper level changed the law and gave you life. Embrace that life. For what is freedom? Freedom is the power, right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. The law of sin and death doesn't restrain you any longer. You're now free to give yourself to God, to give yourself to righteousness, to serve Him as the mind and the heart wants to. What could be more precious And to be free from sin and death and free to live in God in the Spirit. That freedom comes from the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit 
And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Feeling enslaved by sin this morning. Feeling trapped and smothered because of unrighteousness. Feeling condemned and doubtful. The remedy to those feelings is to enjoy life in the Spirit rather than life according to the law. Whether the law of God or the law of your own mind, embrace and enjoy the freedom. Spirit works even deeper. Verse 3 frees us not only from condemnation and not only from the law of sin and death, but the Holy Spirit frees us from works righteousness. Paul writes there, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. (laughs) The person who's not born again has a significant problem. That problem is summed up in one word in verse 3, the the word flesh. Flesh is a word the Bible uses as a synonym for humanity's sin nature. Flesh refers to that fallen part of us, that corrupt part of us that is hostile to God. The flesh is the sin that's in us, not the sin that comes out of us. The sin that comes out of us only comes out of us because of sin that's in us, the sin nature. Now, the flesh makes it impossible for a person to obey God's law and through their obedience achieve righteousness before God. See what Paul says there, the law weakened by the flesh could not. Could not make us righteous, it could not make us free. Now, the problem is not the law. The problem is us. We are sinners trapped inside of a nature. Again, Paul is dealing with this in Romans chapter 7. Look back there in verses 7 to 12 this time. Romans 7, verses 7 to 12. The apostle Paul writes there, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, that is the flesh, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. That that needs two or three sermons all by itself. But notice what Paul is saying. The problem is not God's law. The law is holy, righteous, and good. The law even promises life. But the flesh or the sin nature weakens the law. The law can't produce it in us because of the sin that's in us. In fact, the sin nature is awakened by the law and seizes opportunity through the law. Let me try to illustrate that. You ever had somebody tell you that something was wrong and until they told you, you you weren't even thinking it was wrong? And then when they told you it was wrong, you wanted to do it all the more? That's what's happening with the law. The law says, thou shalt not covet. You hear that law, you go, what's covet? 
you shall not want anything that's your neighbor. It's like, man, I've been wanting a whole lot of stuff my neighbor got. <laughs> and then you start multiplying the things you've been wanting that belongs to your neighbor. And so the law is exposing more and more sin that you wasn't even aware of until the law came and said, thou shalt not covet. And then the law deceived you or the flesh deceived you. Excuse me. The flesh would make you look at the law and say, oh, man, that's all strict. God, all me. Ain't nothing wrong with me wanting what my neighbor got. That's nice. (laughs) Y'all know how we talk. (laughs) And so the flesh, sin, was seizing the opportunity to deceive and to lead us deeper into sin. The problem wasn't the law. The problem was our hearts, was our sin nature. No matter how hard, listen, we work at being good, our sin nature conspires against us. It ruins all of our efforts at righteousness that comes through our own obedience and work. No matter how much we desire to do what's right, the law will keep on pointing out our sin. We will discover, as I said, sins we didn't even know we were committing. And the more we try to establish our own righteousness before God, the worse it gets, the more bound up and condemned we become. Works righteousness and self-reliance is the root of our condemnation, not the solution to it. You understand what I'm saying? It is the root of our condemnation, not the solution to it. So when we feel ourselves condemned, the response is not, let me double down on obedience, which is self-reliance. The response is, let me double down on the gospel. Christ has done it. Jesus has paid the cost. I'm free in his spirit. And and let me serve him now, not out of a sense of obligation to make up for what was wrong. Let me serve him now, knowing that he has removed what's wrong, and I am free to come to him without fear of condemnation. So the spirit is doing that deep work of freeing us from self-righteousness. Love the way that's displayed in Vernon's testimony this morning. Here is incredibly good news in verse 3. God has done what the law could not. All is not lost. God provides what we need and what we could not achieve. The rest of verse 3 tells us how God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That means that Jesus took our place. God the Father sent his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The word there is likeness. He was not himself a sinner. He was without sin. He bore our humanity without our corruption. He was like us in every way, the writer says, but yet without sin. Humanity owed to God perfect obedience. And so therefore, our Savior needed to be fully human. And so Christ came in our likeness. And I like this. He came for sin. You know, we talk about sometimes people coming for us. Jesus came for your sin to give himself for it and to rescue you from it. 
He came to, dis, to, to condemn sin in human likeness. This is a marvelous truth of the gospel. Jesus was condemned in our place so that he might condemn what condemns us. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 explains how. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He brought a new law. He nailed the old infractions to the cross. And he freed us. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He provided a perfect righteousness and a perfect freedom all through faith in him. If you've not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior yet, what are you waiting for? <laughs> freedom is offered to you. Forgiveness is offered to you. God's perfect love is offered to you. Adoption into God's family is freely offered to you. Righteousness, which you cannot produce, but God will give you, is offered to you. What are you waiting for? Turn from sin. Trust in Jesus. And receive all that God promises to those who believe in his Son. And Christian, keep in mind that these words in Romans 8 were written to a Christian church, people like us. Which means we need to be reminded that our standing with God is not based on our law keeping. Don't let Hebrew Israelites tempt you to legalism. Don't let legalistic Christians teach you to legalism. The irony is this, as Ray Ortland puts it, legalism is outlawed in the kingdom of heaven. Legalism won't get you there. <laughs> Folks who tempt you to legalism, tempt us to legalism, are tempting us to hypocrisy and condemnation. This is why it's so vital that we repent not only of our sins, but we repent also of our righteousness. Of trusting our righteousness. That we remember the words of Galatians 5.1, which was our call to worship this morning. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery to the law. Stand in your freedom. And the surest way to do that is to keep turning to Christ and renouncing self-righteousness. Let me give you one suggestion for practically learning to stand in freedom and resisting legalism. One suggestion, we'll take home one thing. Memorize Romans 8, 1-4. Commit it to memory. Hide it in your heart. And whenever thoughts of condemnation begin to whisper, pull out Romans 8. Put it in your heart. And whenever some Christian, well-meaning perhaps, you know, starts to point out your faults and difficulties, and even if they're accurate and true, <laughs> come back to Romans 8. There's no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus for the, for the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Hide it in the heart. Rehearse it. Preach the gospel to yourself daily, regularly, constantly, that we might live in the good of the gospel. So Christian, are you standing firm in the freedom that Christ has purchased for you? Don't let yourself be entangled by a yoke of slavery.
Which brings us to the final thing. The Spirit not only sets us free from condemnation and free from the law of sin and death and, and free from works righteousness, but notice the, the Spirit has to go a level deeper still. He sets us free from our flesh. That enemy within that keeps making the law weak and keeps leading to our death and condemnation. At the bottom, something has to happen with regard to our sin nature. Are we going to find ourselves still trapped and still condemned over and over again unless our nature is changed? Notice what verse 4 tells us. tells us why God sent his son. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but notice, according to the Spirit. Jesus has come and solved our righteousness problem. Everything the law requires of us and all of its holy demands, Jesus has completed. He has fulfilled the law. He obeyed the Father perfectly in our likeness and in our place. So he's our righteousness. He paid not only the law's requirement for obedience, but he also paid the law's penalty for disobedience. When he dies on the cross and the wrath of God is poured out on him instead of us. Now, through union with Jesus, through the Spirit, the people of God have the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in us. Or to use the language of the prophet prophesying the new covenant, the law of God is written on our hearts now. It's not on a stone tablet outside. It's written in our nature. We have fulfilled the law through faith and union with Christ. Notice the consequence now. We walk not according to the flesh. We walk according to the Spirit. Our sin nature no longer reigns over us. Galatians chapter 5. Verses 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul writes there, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The flesh has been killed in the cross, in our union with Christ. And now we are alive in the Spirit. And if so, we are meant to keep in step with the Spirit. Or as he puts it in Romans, we are meant to walk, to live, to have our whole pattern of life and conduct guided by the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? Let me end on this. Well, one way it looks is reading and obeying God's Word. That's the sure way. Uh, the Holy Spirit authored the Bible. So when we follow what he has written in the Bible... We are keeping step with him. If you ever want to know what the Spirit's leading is, search the mind of the Spirit, which is written for us, which is set down for us. He's told us in his word everything he wants us to know. If you're coming from a background that emphasizes the subjective experience of the Spirit, leadings of the Spirit, promptings of the Spirit, and so on, well, you may need to lean more into God's Word so that you have a more sure sense of the Spirit's leading. But the Spirit, secondly, 
He speaks not only by his word, but I do believe the Spirit speaks subjectively. He gives us personal guidance. He prompts us with thoughts, with ideas, even feelings. Now, this is not as reliable as the Scripture. It does not have the same authority as the Scripture. Our thoughts, our ideas, our feelings can be wrong. Anybody ever been wrong? See, yeah, too many of y'all oversay. So we don't want to give our thoughts final authority. We don't want to give our feelings final authority. We don't want to give our subjective promptings final authorities. We want to remember that word of God which says God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. So we want to feel and think and, and so on, but we want to sift it in the light of God's truth and God's revelation. But now if you're coming from a background that's suspicious of the Holy Spirit, you may need to learn not to quench the Spirit. You, you actually may need to learn how to listen to God's promptings, how to trust His suggestions as long as they are consistent with His Word. You may need to learn to prayerfully listen to the Spirit as He speaks and guides you personally. As we said in our first sermon, He is a person, and, and we are meant to fellowship with Him. Well, fellowship with Him. Lean into life with the Spirit. Don't pull back in fear. Lean forward with your Bible. So we have been set free in order to walk with God, in order to walk with His Spirit. Don't pull back from that freedom. That's going to be in His presence, the place of pleasure and joy. So let's conclude. Whatever your background, know this. If you're a Christian, the Spirit has come to set you free. To free you from condemnation. To free you from the law of sin and death. Uh, to free you from, uh, what's the third thing, y'all remember? Works righteousness. Let me see if y'all still listening. Works righteousness. And to free us finally from the flesh so that we can walk with Him. So we can be with him. If we are spirit-filled, then we are free. Breathe in the freedom and rejoice. Let's pray together.